Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Good afternoon, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Good evening to my listeners in Europe, and uh, good morning, I think, to the listeners in Australia. You guys live in kind of a strange time zone. Um, today, I'm honored to have a guest on V Radio from Iceland's Parliament. Um, we're going to get into that in just a few moments. Um, first of all, I want to thank everybody who has supported V Radio uh, so far this month, and um, I'm almost basically at my goal. Uh, I want to. You know, I also wanted to explain uh, the reason that the previous show that I just did was deleted was that uh, the person in question, my guest, uh, I guess he spilled a few more beans than he was comfortable with, and as a result, he asked me politely to take it down. He did say that he will come back and do another interview anytime, um, uh, but that was basically the reasoning for it. Uh, don't take it personally. He wasn't angry with anybody. It just kind of came down to the fact that he revealed a little bit more personal information about himself than he would have liked. Um, but in any case, uh, thank you, uh, Birgitta, uh, Birgitta, for coming on the show today. Um, and uh, go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience. Yeah, hi. Um, so, like I said, my name is Birgitta. Uh, I am uh, currently a member of the Atlantic Parliament for a political movement I helped create. Uh, in 2009, uh, which is a coalition of the different grassroots movements that wanted democratic reform in the wake of the third largest financial man-made uh, collapse, which was sort of like a hurricane in the Atlantic uh, psyche. Uh, but I'm also a poet um, and an activist and um, one of the pioneers when it comes to doing stuff on the internet in Iceland. Uh, and so, yeah, jack of all trades. I, I usually just do things that I love to do. So uh, the first question I always ask a new guest who's never been on V Radio before is, what was the precipice? What was the moment for you that made you decide to get involved in trying to make the world better uh, beyond just the personal world that most people live in? I'm not sure, but I have always, um, ever since I remember myself, stood up for others. Um and I have a very strong sense of um, sort of what I feel is right or wrong. <laughs> and and um, so, but I'm raised up, like my mother was uh, very active. Uh, she was the uh, first female troubadour in Iceland, and she did music to some of the most uh, political poetry throughout the years that uh, some of our best poets used to write. Um, so... It was sort of a part of the culture she belonged to. Uh, so I defined as my first activism was um, there was a teacher in my school when I was 14 that was uh, touching the younger girls uh, in an inappropriate way. And this was prior to sort of pedophile discussion in Iceland and I tried to lobby the girls to um, to do something about this uh, but the, the headmaster took me, stopped it uh, so I actually I, so he just said basically you know, the guy has problems, his wife is not sympathetic to him or whatever so I decided he was a painter in the village that I lived in and I decided to go to the opening of his paint show where everybody from the village were all the people that mattered. And I stood up on a chair and I shouted over everything uh, at this opening what this guy was. Um, 
that was sort of my first action. Uh, and ever since, I just, you know, I really feel, if I feel that uh, something needs to be done, I just go ahead and I do it. And uh, I don't really care if nobody joins me or not, I just do it and I create the platform. That has uh, always been my responsibility to be the catalyst in my own life. If I want something changed, I realize that I have to go and do it. Nobody else is going to make my reality or make my dream come true. Except, you know, I have to put some effort into changing things. Well, you know, that's actually interesting. You and I have that in common. I had a very similar uh, belief structure growing up. I was always kind of an anti-bully, somebody who, you know, stood up for the, the underdog. Um, you know, so, yeah, I definitely appreciate that. Um, now, what made you decide to take this uh, effort in standing up for the little guy, so to speak, into politics? Mm-hmm. Um, that was... Um, After the financial collapse, I've been an activist for a long time for various issues. I've organized uh, protests, um, you know, against the Iraqi war, uh, for Tibet, uh, you know, for the environment and so forth. Uh, So when we had this financial collapse in Iceland, um, there were so many different people coming forward that wanted to do stuff that you'd never seen before. And having, you know, coming from a small community like Iceland, we're only 318,000. So you basically, you know, all the activists. So every time you see a new person, it is uh, quite uplifting. And then we had literally hundreds of groups and or hundreds of people, new people and, and 20 or something new groups forming. Um, I felt inspired to, and this is one of the things that I've always felt very passionate about, is to try to get people to start to work together, to push aside the things that divide us and look at what we have in common. So I helped create something uh, we called uh, Solidarity, a coalition of the grassroots groups. And all the different grassroots groups wanted, felt that it was one of the three top things they felt needed to be done, was to create a political movement to have a voice inside parliament uh, and to bring forward uh, and pressure on democratic reform. Uh, so um, I just decided to help create this political movement. And, and for me, it was uh, very exciting because people were really open to look at alternatives to the old way of doing politics uh, or political parties. So we decided not to define ourselves left or right. Uh, and just to focus on the most urgent agenda and create sort of a hit and run movement to to you know go inside parliament, get the change done, and then you know dissolve it. Uh, because I think often the problems we have with when people go into places of power, that just becomes they forget that they are activists. It becomes really comfortable, and uh, they see that you know it's a, uh, they just get sort of uh, infected. By the surrounding, because we're all very codependent to some degree or chameleons. So, yeah, and I actually had decided, I mean, I was not going to run myself, <laughs> uh, but uh, we, only, it was very hard to get women to take on sort of uh, leadership in their constituencies, uh, you know, for the risk of actually being elected. So, we only had one out of six uh, women. And it was like five guys and one woman taking on the different constituencies. And I, I felt that it couldn't be a part of creating a movement that had such steep inequality when it came to gender. Because we need, of course, to have 
we've had a long period of patriot uh, sort of patriotic systems or uh, societies and i feel that uh, the matriarch for me it is about the perspective of seeing the whole picture uh and acting out of you know a long term interest which i feel that often lacks in the, the societies we live in right now so i decided two weeks prior to election to run and i'm i'm still uh, realizing that I'm in this weird place. <laughs> well, you but you won. Um, I guess that that begs the question. Uh, the would be the what what first of all. Let's talk a little bit just so the listeners understand who are not from Iceland uh, mm -hmm. how it works there. I mean, I assume that you guys have provinces. You know um, that people run for positions to have constituents and therefore you know re represent. Is that I mean that's how it works. Yeah, so we have like six of these, and we decided to run in all of them, even if most of us were based in the city, because uh, the only way to get on air in the TV, uh, in the debates, was to run in all the constituencies. So that's why we decided to run in all of them, even if it was quite a hard, it was a hard work to get people to to, to offer to run. <laughs> uh, and but we only had like eight weeks prior to elections. Um, to to do this and we didn't have any money and yet we got 7.2 percent of the entire vote that's actually great though i mean that's i mean it points to that especially something um uh the fellow craig who i'm going to give a shout out to who connected the two of us uh you know he's been he's been spreading your links all over the place of uh, just different stuff that you're doing and uh one of the names of one of the articles was why Iceland should be in the news, but is not. I guess there's somewhat of a social revolution going on in your country, and it seems like the media is desperate to try to pretend it's not going on. Do you, you want to shed a little light about that? Yeah, sure. There are some inaccuracies in this article, but you know the general spirit is that uh, it's sort of typical for Iceland to have a relatively silent revolution. So we had our revolution, which was very noisy and very tribal and, and beautiful, where, where we ousted out the, the old government. Um, but people were very clear about what they wanted, and they wanted democratic reform. They wanted that the nation would rewrite the constitution, that we could have um, uh, a legal means of calling for national referendums without... Uh, you know, somebody to act in between, like currently we have to have the president call for that on our behalf. So we, and, and I managed also to get through the parliament uh, very, uh, in many ways, revolutionary proposal where I managed to, uh, with the help of lots of great people in the parliament, um, to task the Icelandic government to create a safe haven for freedom of information in Iceland by changing or improving or writing new laws, 10 different laws in four different ministries, uh, and, and purely based on freedom of information, expression, and speech. Um, but the, the beautiful elements about many of the things that are happening here um, are that all of these things come from the nation, not the, not the politicians. Uh, but they, the nation is certainly giving the politicians uh, very strong guidelines. And the big battle right now is that we've, we have managed to get the constitution rewritten uh, by representatives of the nation. No parliamentarians allowed, <laughs> uh, which is necessary because uh, 
once you get politics into the constitution, like ordinary party politics, it's finished. We're not going to get the changes we need. One of the most important changes in the constitution for me is to ensure that our resources will remain in the ownership and the guardianship of the nation. Uh, this is critical for something that we will discuss later, which would be resource-based um, economy. But it's also critical not to lose our resources. We already lost one um, as a result of us being in the IMF program that we are finally sort of moving out of. Um, so we we lost uh, one of the energy companies to uh, sort of uh, a front, a Canadian company that was created to make a front for the Pan American Silver Corporation, which is one of the notorious mining companies in Canada. Um, so we have we have lost many battles, but we have won many. And if I look at the bigger picture, I think that we have won greater battles. Um, but there are still many ahead, and I think it is critical that, uh, and I lobby a lot for this idea that the nations that are in IMF program, that have been in an IMF program or heading into it, should actually work together and create some sort of uh, coalition of nations. Uh, and we should shift the, the traditional way of doing trade, for example, because uh, I find it uh, to be one of the major problems is the way we have created um, sort of the how much power was given to the multinational corporations and the politicians they control. Because uh, let's face it, most powerful people in the world are all controlled by the multi-corporations. You know, it's it, that's another actually interesting point. This kind of goes back to like your election in the first place is that the notion of winning an election with such a great percentage with so little money is in other countries would be a miracle. Uh, you know, like uh, in the United States, you could just never do that. I, I did a show called uh, On the Subject of Sheeple, where we played recordings of people walking around talking to voters and asking them who they voted for and why. And it was very clear that the money ruled everything. You, you could not possibly get an honest politician into office. Because the only ones that were ever exposed were those who are completely owned by those multinational corporations that you were just mentioning. So, I mean, it's but, great, though. It also points to there's got to be a better view of politics going on in your country. No, but no, but listen, what you said, that is so totally don't agree with it. Because, mm. okay, you, you have identified the problem. Right. So why not look at the, you know, ways of like we did, if we would not have run, uh, you know, in the entire country and it looked absolutely impossible and there were some big hurdles on the way um, and it looked like we might have, you know, we nearly missed this chance, um, was to make sure that we would figure out where in the system, how can we use the system uh, in order to um, have the same chance as the others. Now, in the United States, since you have so incredibly controlled media and so forth, you have lots of networks. You have lots of alternative radio stations, TV stations. You know, you have Democracy Now!, you have so many brilliant uh, activist-based, you know, online medias and so forth. What you need to do, uh, and, and, and this might sound like a cliche, but, you know, I, I don't ever acknowledge 
the concept that something is impossible. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and and maybe that's because I've been around hackers a lot and, and sort of internet pioneers, but, you know, the mentality of the hacker is there's an obstacle, I'm going to go around it, I'm going to figure out how to come get through all these locks, if you know what I mean. So we need to use the same method in the offline world. Uh, and uh, if people could maybe use uh, the basic idea that we had for the movement in Iceland, where you bring together all the different grassroots movements into one group of people, and what you need to do is do like they they do in India and and other countries, you know, go into the communities, you know, have free movie nights, and and you know, the sidecast movement has been doing very successful in many ways in this by sort of mobilizing the communities and. And, uh, for example, we showed the sidecast where I did uh, and uh, a couple of other groups showed the film, the newest film, for free. And it was completely packed with people. Uh, so I think, you know, there is no such thing as impossible. But this is something that's been told to people. Again and again, you've seen so many failures, but that's because people are trying to push through ideology instead of just looking at the task ahead. Uh, and you don't necessarily have to get in you can try just to get in uh, with uh, the hit and run concept. You know, you can rename it into something, you know, more, less sort of uh, radical. Uh, but, you know, if people could just start to work together uh, and looking at the common things that are so urgent to fix, uh, well, we're going to run out of planet. We're running out of time. And now you're having some really good crisis in the States, just like we have everywhere. And that is the biggest, biggest opportunity for real change. So if people would, for example, I always use the example of the Patriot Act, because there is no single law that has taken away as many liberties and freedoms uh, in one country as this particular act that was passed just after, you know, a big crisis in your country, the 9-11 crisis. Uh, if those of us that care for freedoms and care for the common good would actually do apply the same methods as these guys that had the Patriot Act in their drawer, drawer ready, we would have much more chance to actually get some changes done. And uh, you don't need huge movements. You just have to be organized and, and, and people be inspired that they have this common agenda, these, you know, maybe 10 things that they feel they're very urgent to push through uh, for democratic reform uh, in your country, for example, or in any other country, for that matter. You know, actually, when you said all of that, it actually, you know, it is very inspiring, and you have a very good point. I guess um, my biggest point would be the contrast in the kind of culture that we have to overcome. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, obviously, there there must be something about Iceland's culture that puts you in a position to get what? What did you say? Seventy-two percent of the vote. That's amazing. No, 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 no. Just seven point two. We only got four MPs out of sixty-three. Okay. All right. I, I misunderstood. But still, you yeah. got elected, and you're you're part of a you know a party. I mean, in our country, the concept of anybody elected outside of the two, I, I very loosely say two, because they're pretty much the same party in a lot of ways. The two political parties. <laughs> is so unheard of and i guess that would be you know it, what you know the strategy or the difference just the way people pay attention to politics must have been wonderful in iceland i mean as but as we said earlier you know the the links that craig showed me you know something has been going on in iceland for a long time um and my hat is off to you and i have to say you know you're an inspiration and i hope that the other people listening will also take this as an example of why they should not allow themselves to become uh 
apathetic to the point of not wanting to do anything. Um, so, and that being the case, um, it, I would I would also ask. Uh, we, we've discussed a little bit about uh, the, the freedom of information issues and the, the different positions that it looks like Iceland wants to take towards WikiLeaks. Would you like to discuss that? Mm -hmm, sure. Um, and I, I want to, before I forget it, um, I, I want to remind every anybody that's listening to the show that, you know, you, you as an individual, you can make a difference. Everyone can make a difference. And this has been my mantra. You just have to have it as your mantra that, you you know, I as an individual, I can make a difference. Uh, and, you know, all of a sudden I have a huge megaphone towards, you know, not only the people in Iceland, but to, to the world. And I'm extremely humbled by it. Uh, and it's so important that we get to plant seeds of new ideas and hope and inspiration. And remember that every one of us have this opportunity. Uh, it's not just for selected few or the American dream. Every one of us can. And I just wanted to pass this on because I feel it's so important. Um, when it comes to freedom of information uh, and the reason why I am so passionate about that <laughs> uh, is that if you don't have freedom of information, freedom of speech, and freedom of expression, you don't have democracy. And, and what I have been witnessing in the, all the different democracies around us, and also in Iceland, uh, even if it's getting much better than it was, is that we don't really have democracy, but dictatorship with many heads. Just like you said, it is so hard for ordinary people to become a member of Congress or, you know, representatives or, you know, or, or let alone president. Uh, and that's not democracy. Democracy should absolutely not be like that. Uh, you should have a, a, a possibility to participate. Uh, when it comes to freedom of information, uh, one of the things that the Internet did uh, to open our world was to uh, make information be without borders, that it was like a complete free flow of information all over the world. And in the early days, it was... Like I got online uh, and became active online in '95, um, and it felt like an opportunity to create a new sort of planet internet uh, where there were no borders. People could work together without knowing each other, and you know, uh, on global scale uh, projects that would actually then, in the end, impact the offline world as well. So uh, I'm very upset to see all the Berlin and the China walls being placed on the Internet and often, very often, in the disguise of copyright issues or to protect the children or to stop pornography and so forth. So, um, but even more troubling um, is the fact that the information that we have right to uh, about the big multinational, about the corrupt politicians uh, and all the connections between these two uh, just never makes it in the news. It's being out of, you know, there are out-of-court settlements constantly, and the media has become so weak because uh, the old-school media is sort of vanishing, and most of the media is now geared into the Internet but they have, because people use it there, but the uh, companies haven't figured out how to make money of it, so they are basically slashing the investigative journalists, they're, you know, giving up to uh, corporate pressure not to uh, publish stories or change stories, and they're giving, caving into pressure to take stuff out of our historical records, 
uh, news that have been, you know, maybe online for a few years and, and contain information about some of the uh, criminal behavior of some of these multi-corporations. And um, so uh, I have met very many investigative journalists and and, um, and very many people that have been looking in particular at the laws uh, in Europe and the situation there. And I have come to the conclusion that uh, it's absolutely vital that, to be vigilant uh, and provide strong laws, not only for information to be able to be published and to remain online, which, you know, WikiLeaks obviously showed us in their, you know, um, in particular when I was working with them a bit prior to them becoming so uh, known, uh, was that they had managed to fight off every legal attack and keep all the stuff online no matter what. So obviously it was great to have an opportunity to work with them uh, to look at the countries that had actually managed to protect their, this information that was on WikiLeaks. Um, and um, so we based our legislative changes um, on these countries that had actually in praxis worked for something, a website uh, like WikiLeaks. Well, yeah, that's uh, that's actually all great, and I, I totally understand where you're coming from. I mean, a lot of it is, when you think about it, is the, the reason why many of us are even here. I mean, if it were not for the fact that I was able to watch, you know, uh, movies put together uh, that exposed the Venus Project, I would have never heard about it, you mm -hmm. know, uh, the way that things were done previously. Uh, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation if it weren't for the Internet. I wouldn't be able to do this radio show if it were not for the Internet. And, you know, the FCC over here is just chomping at the bit of, you know, what are we going to do? We can't control these people and the information that they put out. Uh, it scares the politicians, too. Uh, independent bloggers have an impact on campaigns. That's been seen. Uh, there are politicians that they'd really rather nobody ever listen to again. Uh, people like Ron Paul or... My friend, Senator Mike Gravel or Dennis Kucinich, that, you know, the Internet keeps going, you know, and if they if they were not around, I mean, if the Internet was not here, it, you know, I look back on it now, actually thinking about the world before the Internet, uh, it, really take a thought about, you know, take a moment and think about the ramifications of it, because uh, especially back in those days, I don't know what it was like in Iceland, but say during the 80s or whatever, before the Internet really took off. You know, the politicians were whoever was, you know, the presidential candidates was whoever was in the was in the debates. And if people were dropped out of the debates, nobody asked why. They just assumed, oh, OK, I guess that candidate's not running anymore. Um, and that was it. They totally controlled who you even had a chance to look at. Uh, so there was no opportunity for you to explore, you know, and they tried to do that to Ron Paul. So his followers got together on the Internet and they waged a campaign that, yes, he didn't win presidency, but he did affect a lot of change in other ways. Uh, mm -hmm. Like the fact that the Federal Reserve is being looked at very distinctly now, and even now, realistically, even by the mainstream media, they've picked up this issue of the Federal Reserve, and they wouldn't have done that if it wasn't for his presidency, uh, or presidential candidacy. I'm sorry, uh, you know, and so that's that's why it's so important, and that's one of the reasons, you know, why you know PJ Peter Joseph said at the end of his movie, you know, we need to protect the internet because it really is our savior right now. Um, and so that, that's basically, you know, I think everything that you just said is very critical and I hope that people understand that. I guess one of the things that bothers me the most though, is that it's, there are, there are some legitimate abuses of the internet, just like people, you know, harassing one another or whatever. And I don't think that people realize that when they're doing that, they're doing an excellent job of 
convincing other people that maybe there should be regulations on the internet. And I still don't feel that's the solution. But as soon as you get these people who went out, of, you know, go out of their way to use the internet as a harassment tool rather than as an educational or communicative tool, um, they, you know, those people who generally hide behind the concept of freedom of speech don't realize that that's a great way to convince the masses that these things need to be controlled. Is to start, you know, blogs about attacking people personally rather than, you know using it for what it's meant for. And that's like, you know, for the things that, you know, people in your position are using it for, you know, things like this radio show. Um, I guess it's just a question of, you know, uh, don't abuse the freedom, you know, because then people start to look at it negatively. Uh, gun control could fall in the same category. Uh, you know, so, but in any case, though, um, now we talked a bit about that. We talked about, you know, freedom of information. And uh, I know you wanted to cover the transformation of politics. Uh, so go ahead and talk about that. Uh, okay, so I I actually addressed it a little bit uh, by talking mm -hmm. about uh, the movement, and but I I feel that one aspect that I have not covered in that regard uh, is that I feel that very many people I have not heard as much about it from the United States, but then again we don't get much news about sort of all the the different um, actions and dissidents and and general um, unhappiness about the situation in the United States, but in Europe it's been a very strong uh, opinion that uh, among the protesters uh, that the system has become too self-serving, that it's no longer serving the citizens, it's only serving itself. And um, I think, you know, it's so important that we start to think about then Okay, so what do we want instead? If we don't want this system, and I, I, I really totally agree, I don't trust the system, and the more I have becoming sort of involved in working within the system, the less appealing it is to me. Uh, but we have to start to think what we want instead uh, of this particular system. And uh, since I define myself uh, sort of like um, a realistic anarchist, and, and then I want to... Uh, emphasize that uh, anarchism has been sort of the concept has been destroyed by uh, media coverage of it being some sort of form of chaos. Anarchism is really about people being responsible in their communities, being uh, part of creating their uh, societies, and uh, uh, and that you don't have any sort of governmental control over what you're doing. Uh, you you are your society, but I have realized, and that's why I put in front of uh, the world anarchist. Uh, I put realistic, because I realized that most people don't want, not yet at least, they don't want to be that involved. But right. We have to provide the tools for people to be involved, and we have to inspire them, and we can cannot do it in such a big monster systems. Uh, because the systems have become so big that they don't have any room for, you know, specialized circumstances, you know. So, but we are all special, and all our circumstances are special. Uh, and I've just heard so many inhumane stories about people dealing with, you know, the the windmills of the system. Um, so maybe one, like, and I just want to offer this idea, and I would really like people to just have debates and uh, and talk about, you know, what can we do instead of this big system. Uh, one of the things that I feel is very important is that we, all of the communities in the world, have to learn to be more self-sustainable. 
that we, you know, without isolating ourselves, but, you know, more self-sustainable, it is absolutely insane that, you know, there are tulips being flown into Holland from Kenya. That mm-hmm. just leaves too much uh, footprint on our environment, you know, for something that withers away and dies in three days. It's just insane. So um, we have to become more self-sustainable. We have to look at different uh, energy resources uh, than, you know, this oil dependency. We are anyway in peak oil, and I really encourage everybody that listens to this uh, to have a look at the tar sands, that project in Canada and Alberta. It is absolutely shocking. Uh, and I, I didn't realize until I saw that um, a documentary about it, you know, that we're in peak oil. But the the, the big issue is, like, if we're going to become more self-reliable um, and self-sustainable, we have to understand what it means. Uh, and we have to understand that we are all going to have to change the way we live. That is just a simple fact. We're running out of this planet if we carry on the way we're going. There will be plenty of planet if we change our ways, but it's not going to. Ha- it cannot happen from top down. It has to happen from each and every one of us. But we have to realize that we have to downsize uh, the way we live. We have to realize that maybe it is absolutely insane that. You know, I buy clothes imported from sweatshops in China. It is unacceptable, if you know what I mean. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Just not willing to make these changes. But, you know, there's not going to be any future for our kids if we don't change the way we behave. <laughs> it's as simple as that. And it's down to every one of us to do something. And we don't have to, like they say, that all revolutions start in our own heart. It is so true. But let's not forget what uh, the word revolution is. If you take away the R, what word do you have? You have evolution. So, But that revolution is going to have to start in each and every one of us. That's actually amazing um, that you, you brought it up. It's very inspiring the way you said it also. And I guess that's a good segue into the, uh, the conversation about the Venus Project's ideas and the resource-based economy model. Um, we talked a little bit about this off the air. Uh, the, I guess the question then would be, you know, some of the things that you said that were more compelling that we need to get out of, like the, the money paradigm. So I'll just, you know, uh, rather than quoting you, I'll just go ahead and let you, you know, give your feelings on the matter. Well, one of the the, um, uh, the sort of the big debates in Iceland, for example, after the financial collapse, has been about you know the financial system, and it's actually been amazing to watch after this big collapse in 2008 worldwide uh, that they just went ahead and, and rebuilt the same faulty system, and the collapse is just gonna become worse and worse and worse if we don't stop and think, uh, you know, is this really sustainable to have a debt-based economy? Uh, you know, and there's been many good documentaries that explain, you know, uh, fractional reserve uh, banking and so forth. And, and to me, it is absolutely insane. You know, I'm not an economist, but, you know, I'm sort of, a I think, a, a common sense person. Um, and it just doesn't make any sense to me. And uh, I, I think that I was very much inspired by my father. He never had any debt. He always collected or saved money and paid, you know, for the house he built you know, with money he'd collected. And we were not particularly rich people. Uh, so 
And I think one of the models we can really look at uh, as a solution to the debt-based uh, based economy uh, and, you know, the market-driven economy uh, is a resource-based um, economy. Uh, but I want to also stress, you know, because I don't, I don't really think that there is one model uh, that fits all, if you know what I mean. We have to be flexible as we're sort of learning to cope with the fact that we're going to have to rebuild all of the systems. And um, but it just, I think it's a beautiful idea to have resource-based economy. I mean, uh, it just makes absolute absolute sense, and it could be a way for us to stop the sort of the insanity where we're heading. And and I think it's one thing I learned, and I think this is such so important for anybody that wants to sort of be involved in, in communities uh, or, you know, become involved in creating political movements or movement, is that the, the strongest guide light that I have always had is that, and I learned this from the chieftains of uh, the way the, the chiefs used to do in your country a long, long time ago when there were Native Americans only there. Um, and what they did was that they always planned seven generations ahead. They always served the next seven generations. And they had the support of the previous seven generations to do so, the spirit of the seven generations. And I think that this is just absolutely common sense. We cannot organize our lives and our societies and our future based on four or five-year terms. That's crazy. And 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 then if you add in the uh, corporate cycle, which is much shorter <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. profit, then that's one of the reasons we're in this mess. But I have to stress that one of the main, main, main reasons we are in this mess is because people have stopped caring about being part of their societies. They have, have uh, been brainwashed into thinking that they don't have any power. Um, and one of the things, uh, and and I also want to stress uh, when it comes to the Venus project, you know, for me it's a little bit, um, uh, you know, uh, and I, I think there's actually there are models within it where it can be smaller. You know, I'm not all that for, uh, even if I'm uh, addicted to my laptop uh, and and a, a sort of a technology geek. I still, you know, I think it's so important that we are in harmony and tune with the environment and nature uh, around us and that we don't only, we don't make cities that separate us from it. I think that's one of the problems as well is that we have become so alienated from the rest of the, rest of the species and the environment around us. And I say that because I live in Iceland and in Iceland we are constantly reminded about the forces of nature uh, around on this uh, island uh, and you have to be a bit humble to these forces um, you know it's uh, the newest uh, sort of crust that people live on <laughs> uh, on the planet so it's very active and, and um, uh, lots of earthquakes and volcanoes and icebergs and, and stuff like that and of course isolated uh, uh, like we are but um yeah, I, I don't think you know. I, I don't think that we should uh, focus on that there is this one solution, but we can certainly all go into the same direction. And the direction is that um, we have to rethink all the structures, um, and we will do it together. We should really do it together. 
One of the things I think uh, that have been very useful, at least for me, is that in the process of looking at the old constitution, um, and I really think, and this might sound terrible to uh, listeners in the U.S., but I really think that each generation should uh, be a part of rethinking uh, or reworking on um, the constitutions. Uh, you know, because it is really what the Constitution is all about. It is the, the social agreement and what sort of social fabric you want to live within. Uh, and we need to talk about it on a regular basis. <laughs> and, you know, people might not want to change anything, but at least they could discuss what's important or not to be a part of a Constitution. Uh, and, and I have learned so much about, you know, by just evaluating what is important to me to be a part of my society. And um, I think that it would be very useful for all nations to go through this cycle much more often than we do. And I've actually learned that there are many countries in Europe that don't even have a constitution. <laughs> that, that, that was very shocking. Um, yeah, that is shocking. How, do, how the heck do they govern themselves? <laughs> is well, that or something, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, I, basically, I... I, I I really have enjoyed this conversation, and it, it's also interesting enough. I mean, I've had a few people in the chat room have suggested, you know, geez, maybe we should move to Iceland where there's you know, politics that can possibly work for the people. But um, now I have a question here from the chat room. Somebody is asking if you have been in contact with Julian Assange recently. Um, no, I haven't. Um, but I want to address one thing uh, about, gee, I want to move to Iceland, even mm -hmm. if I'm would be very happy to have more, uh, you know, people that uh, want to do things. Mm -hmm. uh, it's so important that we realize that we can do it in our society. I remember prior to the crisis in Iceland, nobody believed that they could change things the way we're changing them now. So, you know, just embraces the crisis ahead because it's an opportunity for real change. Okay, excellent. Um now, I, I wanted to touch a little bit on the fact that, I mean, I remember I spoke to Jacques Fresco and Roxanne Meadows about this once, but apparently they came to visit your country, uh, that the majority of your country's power actually comes from geothermal energy. Um, I mean, obviously, and I know you're not an engineer, but if you could comment a little bit on that and uh, explain on, you know, just like what it's like to be live in a country where a lot of your energy comes in that fashion. Well, yeah, this is actually quite fascinating, uh, the way we use the geothermal uh, and I say it's fascinating because it was um, like when I was growing up uh, and I lived in a fishing village uh, that only had, uh, we didn't have any geothermal, uh, you know, no hot water that we could pump out of the earth to heat our houses like in a village that was only 10 k's from us uh, or I don't know how many miles, maybe 20 miles or something. And um, it was very expensive to to heat up the houses with oil. Because we had to import it from, I think it was Russia at the time or something. Anyway, so a few years later, like maybe, you know, I don't know how many years ago uh, or decades, maybe 30-something, 30 35, uh, there was a political decision uh, to actually transform all the heating of houses into geothermal uh, uh, heated houses. So what we do is that we have radiators that we pump in, you know, steaming hot water. <laughs> uh, and even if it's rather, it's not really cold here in the winter, but the winters are quite long. 
Uh, it's not really cold compared to New York in the winter, but it never gets very hot either. But our houses are really warm. We never have to suffer from being cold in the winter. And at the same time, we are not absolutely dependent on uh, oil or, you know, we don't use any coal or anything like that. And it would not take a lot of effort to actually, most of the, um, most of the things that use oil or, you know, petrol or cars and our shipping fleet. Uh, if we could uh, be maybe then, I think that would be really cool uh, if we could be the first nation that would have all the cars um, running on, you know, water or uh, electricity or, you know, hybrids of some sort, uh, because we're not that many. Uh, and it wouldn't be, you know, it would be a great pilot project for one of these companies that uh, uh, want to put their bats on uh uh, cars that uh, use renewable energy to some degree. So, um, um, so we could actually, and, and I've heard that uh, there are even, you know, technology to drive big fishing uh, vessels uh, on other energy than just uh, diesel. So, you know, it would be really, and I've heard that there, there have actually been some uh, reports and studies on how we could do this, and. Uh, I think it would be really cool if we could show others that it's possible. So in a way, Iceland can and should serve as a, a sort of a laboratory on, you know, where to go uh, for the future. Um, and and in, in a way, you know, a nation like us, that's a small nation that doesn't have any military, uh, that wants to be known for being a peaceful, courageous nation, there are very many ways we can be of service to the rest of the world. You know, it's excellent, actually, that you brought that up. And uh, one of the things that Jacques Presto <laughs> talks about regularly is the apparent ignorance that most people have to the true state of technology. When I was, and I've brought this up on many shows before, so bear with me to my regular listeners, but I was debating a fellow who was big-time pre-market capitalist once, and I was talking about, he was saying, well, it's not viable, you know, your idea of working without money and all that, and you know, these technologies you're talking about, you know, they're they're not developed, they're not as far as you think. And I was like, well, what about geothermal energy? He's like, geothermal, that's not real, that's Star Trek. You know, this is somebody who, you know, who honestly believed. I mean, he was fervent about it. I had to give the guy links to get him to leave me alone about it. You know, I was like, geothermal, did you know that Iceland powers itself like 70% through geothermal? You know, and... It was amazing. The guy just stopped talking because he looked so silly at that point. But uh, <laughs> people really didn't know, you know, that the state of geothermal energy. And honestly, before I had watched uh, Zeitgeist Denim and, and it got exposed to the, the various things that Jacques Presco suggests with the Venus Project, I didn't even know the true state of geothermal. Um, so it's it's amazing to me how how few people really know that these options are there. Um, and it almost seems intentional. It almost feels intentional. Actually, I've talked to right. different people who have developed alternate technologies you know for example uh, a friend of mine who was on one of my previous radio shows developed a device that allows you to convert your diesel engine to run on vegetable oil that uh, restaurants give away for free in fact they pay people to take it away um, mm -hmm. and that used to be the case and in order to respond to that they they, they made them illegal unless you have a, a tank of fuel like you have to actually have a tank of fuel hooked up to your vehicle at all times um, in, in order for you to legally drive these these vehicles that drive on vegetable oil that people are throwing away, uh, you know that's they're trying to make it so that it's uh, basically they're trying to change the paradigms so that these technologies cannot be utilized. I mean, we all know about what they did to the electric car 
or tried to do anyway. It's it's making a comeback thanks to a lot of very diligent activism. Uh, I did a radio show actually with a member of that group too, an activist group that works with electric cars. You guys who are new to the show, you can listen to all of these shows in my archives at b-radio.org. Uh, but in any case, um, uh, now I guess you know having this geothermal. I mean, is is it privately owned by a company in Iceland? Uh, no, uh, thank God. Well, that was actually one of the companies we lost to this Canadian company. Uh, but uh, all our other uh, energy companies are owned by, you know, either uh, townships, what do you call it, uh, monopolists. <laughs> uh, it's either by the nation or, or you know, smaller communities. Uh and uh, all of these resources have to remain in the ownership of the nation because what happens if it's privatized? They will take the price down for, you know, a couple of months and then they're going to do like Enron. Let's never forget Enron. That's how they all work. <laughs> um, and um, they might just do it, you know, slower. Uh, so that's one of the fundamental things, you know, for that all sort of, Things that should remain in public guardianship and ownership, uh, you know, are our resources. Our water, you know, should not be privatized uh, and uh, certainly not the resources. And I think that, like, for example, in the U.S., you do have, you know, states that have thermal heat. Uh, and you have so many brilliant people that are doing so many brilliant things. And it would just be so good to have some of these great minds um do what the people do that are lobbying for law changes uh, in the U.S. Uh, and everywhere. We really need to sever the ties between the corporate and the state. It is critical, and we have to take away the right from the corporation to be regarded as a person with the same rights as a, an individual person, uh, which they claimed when the slaves got their right to freedom. Um, and I, I, I think it is one of the because in general I'm not against corporations I'm just against the monster that this um, uh, psychopathic behavior has allowed them to become uh, because they don't have any accountability for the crimes they're responsible for uh, and we saw this very clearly with the banking sector in Iceland uh, none of the people that put us into this really dire situation have been held accountable and they probably will never be held accountable uh, now, another comment actually from one of my listeners who's tuned in uh, was they wanted me to point out that, um, uh, I don't know if you were aware of this, but the, the Venus Project's designs for cities in the future pretty much want to allow the majority of the Earth to go back to nature and to be preserved. It actually is kind of like a requirement that uh, in the future that we shouldn't be looking at eco you know, ecologically sound things as an option. It should just be the way things are. This is just how we do it from now on. All further technologies need to be designed in a fashion that takes care of the earth and cultivates the earth, you know, that same earth that gives us the energy that you were talking about earlier. Um, I hope that that, you know, clarifies a little bit of that, you know, the, that particular point that nature is very important to the people who are engineering the concepts behind the Venus project. Um, and critical, in fact, uh, no more zoos. You just, you know, like live in areas where you can look at the animals in their natural habitats without harming them. Um, yeah. Zoos are so depressing. I, I can't go to them. I just want to free the animals. They're, they are really depressed, most of them. Is there. <laughs> Absolutely. But, I mean, uh, 
I remember it's been a while since I really looked into the different ideas. And of course, uh, the Venus project is always developing in the sense that you get more and more information about, you know, how it's developing. And um, I remember I saw the first film, uh, the Sidecast film, or the second, the second one. Mm -hmm. I was actually a part of a group that lobbied for the state TV to show the film on the state TV uh, and uh, run by a, a good friend that uh, is with me now in the uh, documentary film um, project. And um, the state TV actually showed the sidecast film in Iceland. That's excellent. That's very excellent. You know, I, I also, it's like the idea of, you know, like we were talking about earlier, these these concepts of energy that belongs to the people, uh, you know, various resources that belongs to the people sounds very much like the concept that certain things should be held in common heritage for all the world's people. Um, yeah. and, and it just, especially if it's if it's a matter of something so critical to our, you know, to our lives, the idea that somebody can own that, it's just, it's like handing somebody so much power over the people to allow anybody to privately own things that are required for life. I usually tell people to break it down into, say, a smaller little scenario. Like, say you're on a starship, a spaceship, and somebody owns the oxygen, you know, how much power does that person have on that spaceship? You know, you couldn't run a spaceship like a capitalist situation. You know, you'd have all kinds of problems. That's, um, Douglas Millett, uh, basically he's an engineer for, he works with NASA on the space shuttle program, was talking about that, that anytime you go into space, it's a resource-based economy. Anytime you, uh, if you were to plant a a base on another planet, it would be a resource-based economy. There wouldn't be any of this nonsense about, well, this person owns the air rights, and this person owns the water rights, and this person owns the, you know, no, that's just you're you're inviting tyranny in your front door. Mm -hmm. um, so, but yeah, overall though, um, you know, Brigitte, we're coming to near the end of the show. Uh, is there anywhere that people can go to to look at your work and to see what it is you're doing? Uh, yeah, they can go. Uh, first, they they should go to if they're interested in the freedom of information stuff that I've been doing to immi. is. Uh, and then if you can just provide them with my name, uh, then if they Google my name, uh, Brigitte Jonsdotter, uh, they can find my official website. It's actually, I've had this site running since 95, uh, and I did it all myself, uh, and I've sort of been adding to it, and I had 250 pages or something. Uh, but that's sort of more of my personal site with poetry and and uh, musings uh, and, and art. Uh, and then my I have a blog, uh, and but I'm the most active on Twitter and Facebook right now. And and if people want to add me on Facebook, I would be very happy to be their friend. Uh, but I have created a special page with my with English added to my name uh, for all my uh, non-Icelandic speaking friends because I filled my quota uh, on Facebook. So I just had to create a counter personality that uh, speaks uh, English. To all the people that don't understand Icelandic, it's still Google Translate is is not good enough yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I use it sometimes to speak to other chapters in 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 chat conversations around the world, and it's funny sometimes the translations like don't don't really work out the way you would expect it, and and they'll all start laughing at you because you'll have said something silly, <laughs> you know. Um, but I but, still think it's so fascinating that people can speak together through Google Translate. I think it's absolutely beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's actually it's it's been quite an experience uh, myself. I, I spent a lot of time with the Russian chapter because I have a lot of friends there, and some of them don't speak English at all. And I, I use Google Translate to communicate with them. And um, sometimes people take things a little bit out of context from it. But overall, 
the fact that that technology can exist, uh, it means so much. You know, that's something like, you know, in Star Trek, they, they take for granted. Yeah, we have these universal translators. That's why we can talk to everyone, you know. Um, and, and that's definitely a, another addition to the concept of the Internet and being able to share information in ways we never were before. Um, yeah. So, but um, in any case, uh, now that we're down to like the last five minutes, Brigitte, is there anything else that you'd like to say to the listeners? Um, yeah, absolutely. I just want to stress that, you know, I really think that uh, what the Sidecast movement have been doing and the way it's been created and it's uh, mostly created by, you know, young people that want some change and some future, uh, I think it's great. And I think that uh, we can uh, really make an important impact in our world uh, through this movement and other movements uh, in our world. Uh, but I just want to stress it again. You know, remember the power you have as an individual to make, uh, you know, positive footprints on this planet. And, and, you know, those of us that are aware of where we are, it is sort of our responsibility to, you know, help others uh, have access to that sort of information. Um, and, and, you know, I also want to tell people that, you know, you in order to, <clears throat> we all have different, you know, strengths uh, and roles, uh, and not everybody needs to be in the same roles. But what has functioned really well for me and my political movement uh, is that we have rotating uh, responsibilities, so that we don't have any leaders. I don't believe that we need strong leadership anymore. I think we have matured enough to learn to be strong together. Uh, even if we have people to take responsibility of, you know, um, mentoring somebody or uh, we should not be looking for strong leaders. That time is over. Finito. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and as, you know, as we develop and mature our ways of communicating with one another in non-destructive fashions, it's only going to get better. Um, consensus can be achieved when people can feel free to openly communicate with each other without in any fashion feeling afraid to say how they really feel or what they really think. Um, so um, in any case, uh, Brigitte, thanks again for coming on. I'm going to take a moment uh, after, after you're off the air to talk a little bit to my listeners and um, we'll take it from there. So um, uh, thank you very much for doing what you're doing. Uh, and, you know, I thank those that have listened uh and uh, I hope to, you know, uh, well, I will definitely be uh, listening to more of your shows. Excellent. And, you know, Brigitte, if anything big is ever going on in Iceland and you want to report on it, and maybe the media isn't talking enough about it, as you said, there is alternative media, and I realized that as you were pointing it out, uh, that I'm part of. Um, <laughs> so uh, feel free, you know, if, if something comes up that you want to cover, you know, by all means, uh, let, let's, let's get back in touch with us. No, thank you very much. And if there's anything I can help, All right, I will do that. Thank you again, and thank you, everybody, for tuning in to V Radio tonight. On an upcoming episode, we'll be talking about the uh, – actually, we'll be talking with the Venus Project, uh, more specifically uh, the Venus Project's activist groups that are forming. Um, in addition, about more specifically, we're going to have Jacques and Roxanne on for a Q&A to talk about the future of that particular endeavor. Um, and uh, we're still looking at uh, working on a, another show with Peter Joseph, where we're going to talk about the work on his new film. Um, and I'm also now working on a show to update everybody about the state of the Zeitgeist Internet newsletter functions that they're getting ready to come together. Brandy Hume from TVP Challenge will be on for that show. 
Um, and uh, that'll all be excellent. Um, B Radio is still trying to get together donations for the rest of this month. If you could visit my website, v-radio.org, every little bit counts. Thanks again, everybody, for supporting V Radio, and thanks again, everybody, for tuning in and spreading these links. I appreciate it. This is my contribution to worldwide uh, thought processes. Take care. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is John Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.